On the banks of the Rio Grande, the mud is littered with discarded ID cards, passports, airplane tickets, and suspicious documents with UN logos. Groups and families illegally cross the river to the United States every few minutes. The water reaches their knees, and they immediately turn themselves over to the waiting hands of the National Guards and Border Patrol agents waiting on the other side. But why are they doing this? The American people are being told the border crisis is being addressed, that additional backup is helping stem the tide, and that new efforts to build barriers are in the works. Here at the Rio Grande, we found that all of this is an illusion. What we found is a coordinated effort with cooperation of foreign governments, financing from the United States, and a pervasive program being run by various NGOs and the United Nations to facilitate human trafficking every step of the way, all through Central America, up through Mexico, and into the American heartland. Our journey began in the east of Texas, at the mouth of the Rio Grande, where we met with war correspondent Michael Yon. He had spent months following the migrant caravans gathered in Panama, and we traveled with him on the investigation at the U.S.-Mexico border. So we're here in front of SpaceX right now, actually in Texas, about to head into the mouth of the Rio Grande. We're here with Michael Young, war photographer. And Michael, I'm curious, I mean, how's it been out here? What have you been seeing? Well, as you know, I've been all over the world this year, four continents tracking migrants, including down the Darien Gap for several months, which is that area between uh, Colombia and Panama. It's a very desert jungle. Many of the people that go through the Darien Gap, most of them are Haitians or Cubans, but that would be more than 50% of the total. The rest of the total come from about 80 other countries like Congo, Nigeria, India, Pakistan, but about 80 other countries. They're all gonna have to go through the cartels to get here. Cartels make a lot of money. This is the Gulf of Mexico. We're going towards the uh, mouth of the Rio Grande River, which is so right across this river is Mexico. Most of the people coming here are not running from a war. They're going through, in many cases, at least a dozen countries that are not at war. For instance, again, I wanted to show you this is the end of the road. Uh, not many people come here. This is, you know, literally where uh, Texas and Mexico and the Rio Grande all meet at the Gulf of Mexico. And so this has historically been a place where a lot of people cross. But what happens is many of the people that can't get visas to come, like start off in Mexico, they start in South America. Like Haitians and Cubans will often start in Suriname. Suriname is the, the very tiny country in the north part of South America and uh, they don't need visas. So they can go to Suriname, and then from there they go to Brazil often, and they'll go to Chile, and then up through Ecuador, and then Colombia, look at all these border crossings. And then through Colombia, they go through the Darien Gap, roughly 10% die there. They make it through the Darien Gap, they get apprehended by the center front, which is the border patrol in Panama, and, uh, and then they're put on buses, and they're driven up to Costa Rica. Costa Rica takes them in something called controlled flow. It's an agreement between Costa Rica and Panama. The United States helped broker that uh, agreement long ago. They end up in Costa Rica. Costa Rica takes them to the border of Nicaragua, pushes them off into Nicaragua and says, have a nice day. So Wait, wait so there, there's government forces in each country 
that help facilitate this trafficking? Absolutely. People from about 80 countries come up to two major places to cross in the Darien Gap, and that's Nacocli and Turbo. They're backed up in Nacocli. I've been there uh, watching the crossing and that sort of thing. And then once they get into the jungle, now the, the next people they have to deal with are the Embarah Indians. They ride horses. They go total Comanche on them. They kill a lot of the migrants. They get usually robbed multiple times. Uh, some of the women carry abortion pills, that sort of thing, because they know they plan to be, they're going to be raped. If they survive the Darien Gap, they have to go over three mountains there. The third mountain's called uh, Montaña de la Muerte, but it's the mountain of death. And on the, that third mountain, many of them fall off and die, right? Uh, then they come down. Now they get to a flooding problem. Many get washed away uh, in the flash floods in the Rio Turquesa. If the migrants survive, they come to a village called Bajo Chiquito. And you won't find Bajo Chiquito on, on Google Earth for some reason. Interestingly, though, when they come out of the jungle, they come to Bajo Chiquito, and then they can get uh, Western Union and uh, MoneyGram. They can get money there at 20% premium. They'll Western Union the money to somebody in Panama City who then sends a text out to the jungle. So once money has you know, been wired to Panama City, they will text down Cell Phone Hill. Uh, they've got money in the village. They'll give the migrants who survived the money that they've wired to themselves or their family has wired. Now they've got some money. Now they can buy things in Bajo Chiquito, the village, and they can pay to get on the dugout canoes to go about three hours downstream, finally be put on buses in the controlled flow program and be taken up to Costa Rica. That takes like six or eight hours. Then they drop them off. Costa Rican authorities take them. They in process them and then take them to the Nicaragua border. But there's no agreement with Nicaragua. So in Nicaragua, they just sneak through. Nicaraguans kind of, you know, let them come through, but, you know, rob them along the way. Then, of course, they finally end up in Texas or Arizona or New Jersey. The human rights crisis at the border is real. But the question is, what's the cause? The narrative we've often been told in the United States is that the cartels are the ones facilitating the crisis. But this doesn't line up, since it begins in the border regions of Colombia and Panama, and even further south. Some countries have gangs working on this, and some don't. At the same time, we know that governments in each country are involved in helping push the migrants north. The question is, What's behind this involvement? Is this a coordinated effort? If so, what's the motive? To try to answer some of these questions, we headed west along the border to Roma, Texas, on the lower end of the Rio Grande Valley, an area which recently saw some larger migrant caravans, and where gang violence often spills across the border, with reported gunfire from Mexico into the United States on an almost nightly basis. There, we met with Tim Lynch, a local resident and a retired Marine Corps officer. So tell me, what's it like being a local resident around here with the whole border crisis? Well, as a local resident, you don't really see any of the border crisis because law enforcement and political establishment are very good about rounding these people up, taking them to the various Catholic Relief Society points where they're given food, given money, given a bus ticket to get into the interior. So let me get this straight then. They give them food and they give them money and then they give them bus tickets or whatever to get Absolutely. them out. Absolutely. Where's the money come from? You see, if you go to the website, they, are, they say work on donations and no doubt they do take donations, but the... the the amount of traffic that they're processing out of here, that's got to be federal money. And the federals will pay, are obviously paying a lot of money to make this problem go away. The migrants, the illegal aliens coming up, we're not talking Mexicans. Me Mexicans can come across here anytime they want to. They just can't go past the, the interior barrier points. This is all Central Americans, Haitians, various other peoples. 
Chinese, and they want to be called. If they go leaking off into the city here, because everybody knows what's going on, the, uh, the local cops, they don't tolerate that. They're all Hispanic. These are American Hispanics. They like their job. They like their wages. They like that they see their property tax go to good schools. They don't like free riders. And that's like any people's anywhere. There are plenty of illegals in the Rio Grande Valley, but normally it will be a father married to an American woman, American kids who were born here. And he'll never come up to the attention of the authorities unless he gets a DUI or auto accident, something like that, in which case it's it's rather rough for the, for the dad. But those fathers, those people that are here like that, they're awaiting their green card and residency status. They're in line. And so the local people understand implicitly that people jumping to the head of the line um, is, is inherently unfair to their family members, in some cases, their own father. Now, you mentioned a lot of people coming across, the first thing they do is they go turn themselves in. Right. Why do they go turn themselves in? Because they'll get, uh, they'll get, they'll get a, issued a court date some, some three years in distance. Uh, be given water. If they got medical issues, they'll get medically screened. They'll give them some food. Taken by bus to the McAllen bus station. They're dropped off there. They walk across the street to the relief societies. They'll feed them again. Get them some tickets to someplace. Then you throw in a half million dollar uh, award because we're separated your family on top of it. It's an absurdity. What are some of the issues you have caused by the illegal immigration to this area? I understand that I've seen fences up. I've seen a lot of people with bars in their windows. Are yeah. there security issues? Particularly as you get further to the west of us, any area where the migrants are crossing is going to be strewn with trash, uh, as as well as, uh, you know, they go to the bathroom and stuff like that. They will trample down or take down all fences in their path. And fences for some of these properties on the interior, they've got miles and miles of fences. That's expensive. They knock down fences. They start a livestock in the, in the isolated areas of the Big Bend country. They have a uh, dwellings when nobody's home but the wife kind of a situation granted these are armed women but five ten fifteen migrant men one armed woman not good and it's forced a lot of people to move so all you need to do you can walk from that point to this this little island without ever getting your waist wet there's a channel that comes through there just run a rope across there for the non-swimmers and hold on to it and they just uh pull themselves back i mean that's only 20 feet the border wall, it creates enough friction to keep them out of the places where people have made their homes close to the river and force them into areas where the border patrol can efficiently police them all up, which is what everybody wants. Nobody wants to try to, because they're not going to get through the city of McAllen. It's not a chance in hell. You know, once they leave the border area, that's fair game for the McAllen Police Department, who the mayor suddenly decided can take part in these matters now that their migrant camp was moved. When these migrant groups come across, they're typically in groups, you were saying, is there like a, a person trafficking them, like a leader or like someone directing it? And who are these people? What the Border Patrol was seeing was families coming across claiming asylum because they had children, but there was the same children everywhere. So that's why they were separating. Them. They started testing DNA to make sure that the children were in fact children of the parents. 30% weren't. And that's, you know, we're talking children here. So now we must, must have a moral obligation to welcome all these people here and it's diluting the value of citizenship. It's a political thing. It's all po how is it politics? This is all politics. We're going to let them in because Trump kept them out. We're going to give them money because Trump separated them. If every migrant coming across this border was guaranteed to vote Republican, they, this place would be shut down tighter than a drum. And I don't think that anybody that's my age, and I'm 63, who's been around as we've watched these parties evolve, I don't think anybody would argue that fact for one second. The expectation is these are going to be reliable Democrat voters, and I'm, I'm sure they are whenever they get a chance to vote. But this is not something that can continue. 
it's uh, something's got to give. So the migrants are being assisted by charity groups. This doesn't seem too unusual, given that charities would be expected to help people in need of food or clothing. But these seem different. In a small town like this, who could cover costs like that? And even more so, if law enforcement is passing migrants over to these charities to be shipped throughout the United States, is this a legal agreement that they have? Who pays for it? And is this a local issue, or is it something bigger? To find out, we decided to ask a sheriff. Sheriff Brad Coe of Kinney County. He made headlines nationally for having to deputize additional officers to help deal with the waves of migrants and illegal aliens passing through. What kind of stuff do you encounter around here typically? Like, what's the average day like for your officers here? In Kinney County, you don't know, it, it's minute by minute. I mean, it might be husband and wife arguing over who, who didn't let the dog in or who didn't let the dog out or a high-speed pursuit that eats up all my manpower for the next four or five hours. Let me show you this video. Of course, this one's right here in town. So this, this was a high-speed pursuit in the town? In, in town. How fast was the car, was the car going? At one point, we were hitting speeds of 100. And the, these are all the guys jumping out of it? Right, jumping, running right through the bank. Who, who are these guys right here? Who, They're who, all illegal aliens. And in this particular group, there was a total of 13 illegals. We caught 12 of them. It's right here. And this one was off duty. You said you have six deputies? Uh, six full-time deputies. Six deputies and every one of them was busy on this high-speed chase. Yeah. How, how often does an incident like this take place? Uh, during When this one happened, we were seeing two two, three a day, sometimes you know, six, seven a week. This is eating up pretty much your whole police force. Your whole, whole force. force. Every time. Every day. This is what I deal with day in and day out. All these here, these are all human smuggling cases. This, past, this entire stack is human traffic. From the past couple of weeks. Just, yeah. this, this is two weeks of human traffic. It's probably less than two weeks. Because this is one that we had day before yesterday. And just on and on and on. They're still, we're still downloading video. So what, what are we watching? This here? is going to be a video of one of my female deputies. General stop late at night uh, for tail light out or speeding or something. She walks up to the truck, doing everything right, looks in the bed of the truck. Holy cow, it's time to step back. She can't get out on her handheld because she's just in a spot, so she has to go back to her vehicle and call for backup. Oh, jeez. That's what we're seeing. Whenever we were kids growing up, and several instances, uh, too many to remember, but uh, they would come up to the house and uh, the illegals, and they would come up and have a bottle of water on them, maybe a couple of pieces of bread, and that's all they had. Um, they would walk up and they would ask for food and water, and they were very humble. Uh, they were in need, and we wanted to help them. Uh, they were looking for work. Their first question was, "Do you have any work we can do?" Uh, fixing fences, uh, digging post holes, they were ready to do anything. Um, the way that it has changed now is whenever we get approached by them, which is a couple times a week, uh, they're very demanding. We need to be fed. We need to charge our phones. You're talking about the ones from back in the day. They had holes in their shoes. Their pants were worn out. They had made a long trek and they were in need. Uh, nowadays, uh, they're dressed in very, I mean, they're dressed nicer than I am. And uh, 
they've got on uh, brand new shoes, brand new jackets, brand new pants. They're being supplied over here by an organization <laughs> that, that is moving them. It is, this is the biggest money-making deal for them right now. Uh, everybody I talk to, DPS troopers, they all say the same thing, that the cartel is profiting off of human trafficking. What's the situation with this? Are, are people really being sent into the heartland? Or, are this kind of like you're just catch and release back into the heartland of America? Are they, are they transporting them further in? They're What's transporting them further in. I mean, we've got buses running through here two, three times a day. They're all brand new buses, charter buses, with those that they're releasing on their own recognizance into Dallas, Fort Worth, New York, etc. Who's paying for this? Where's the money coming from? Well, it's coming from a non-government organization, which, which ones I don't know. And I've got my suspicions where the money's coming from. But if, are they doing anything illegal? Don't know. The NGO is paying for these buses two mm -hmm. or three a day to transport the illegal aliens you're catching and sending them further into the United States? Pretty much. And, and they're not telling you who these NGOs are? Yeah. What are, the, what are they telling you about them? Well, they're just saying they're a non-government organization and that's about it. So the Border Patrol, the National Guard, and even local law enforcement, who we've been told are trying to stop the border crisis, have actually been working under policies to transfer the migrants to non-government organizations, or NGOs, which are then shipping the migrants into the American heartland. And even the local sheriff is being kept in the dark about the details on the organizations they have to pass the migrants to, including what these organizations are, and even what's behind them. If this is a broader policy, then what's the government's role in this? To find out, we reached out to a congressman who's been investigating the issue. On January 20th, the Biden administration unleashed a humanitarian and national security debacle like we haven't seen in a long, long time. And it all traces back to January 20th. Representative Tom Tiffany of Wisconsin has been personally investigating the border crisis including with trips to the Darien Gap. He previously accused the federal government of running a human trafficking operation with the migrants. We met with him at a small airport in Del Rio, Texas. President Biden, one of the first things he did, got rid of Remain in Mexico, started catch and release, and stopped border construction. What's happened? We're gonna have over two million people that come into our country illegally this year. It's very clear that the United States government, at the behest of the Biden administration, is facilitating, as a result of that signal they sent to the rest of the world, illegal immigration is on steroids. So they knew what Joe Biden had said on the campaign trail, and they expected that he was going to follow through on it, and man, has he followed through on it. This issue of people being transported from the border to different parts of the United States, we, we of course know the Biden administration statement that they are flying people. The other thing we've heard talking, for example, to Sheriff Cole is that the sheriff himself is having to transport these people to these buses run by some NGO. The sheriff himself doesn't even know which organization is running those buses. He's not being told, even though he's trying to figure it out. And so who, who is running these buses 
And where are they bringing these people? I would speculate it's primarily the NGOs that are doing it at this point. The open borders groups are in charge of the State Department and generally the Department of Homeland Security uh, with the roles that they play, whether it's legal or illegal. Is this kind of the main facilitator you're seeing or are there others involved as well that are working as the main facilitators? It's a good question how many are out there facilitating it. Obviously the cartels with them running drugs and oftentimes the human element, the human trafficking serves as a diversion for trying to pump the drugs, the fentanyl and methamphetamine into the country. So um, you have people both doing legal activities as well as illegal activities that get involved with this. I mean, think about the villagers from Bajo Chiquito. They're just filling a gap there, transferring these people, and they have a real interest in doing it because when you have a thousand migrants that descend on your village of 500 people, you can't accommodate them. It's in their interest to move them along, but if they can make some money along the way, you know, that helps them. I mean, I was anticipating finding the cartels being the main human trafficking organizations, and now I find out there's all these NGOs. What do you know about these NGOs? It's, it's really interesting to see. So, uh, first trip here in April, um, down in the McAllen area, Border Patrol said, if you watch, um, like down in uh, Mexico and Central America, you'll see an organization called IOM, sometimes OIM, the two, term, two letters are turned around, um, Organization for uh, Immigration, uh, International Migration. And um, uh, they said, watch for them because you may see them. And sure enough, heard about them in McAllen, found them down in Panama. They were the chief facilitator of moving people up that first step of the pipeline to Panama. And then at the end of August, when the Afghan evacuees came to a variety of uh, bases, army bases around country, including Fort McCoy in Wisconsin, guess what I heard from the commanding officer? He said, yes, uh, OIM will be here to facilitate resettling these people. So they're everywhere. And you have the NGOs that are out there. It is something that we need to take a much deeper look. And I know my office is beginning the process of looking at how IOM is getting their funding, where it's coming from, What's their relationship? They're a United Nations outfit, but what's their relationship with the United States government? Because I've been told that they're contracted by the State Department to do their work. There's a lot of questions that revolve around that, and we need to know what they are doing because it should not be an international organization that is doing resettlement in America. It should be our government, and our government is not doing that at this point. Now, you know, also with this organization of international migration. You were saying also these they were involved in the resettlement of the Afghani refugees. I mean, and this is shocking too, that they're involved in multiple issues like this. Uh, what about as well what was happening in Europe at the migration crisis there? Were they involved as well? Yeah, um, they were involved in Europe. And this is one of the things that it was one of the real outgrowths of um, the trip from Panama that was so educational. Um, Michael Yan really emphasized to me, he said, you need to look at this in a much, you need to look at this in a global sense. And migration is at times being weaponized. That is what is happening here. And that's what we saw with Afghanistan, is where the State Department said, get them on the planes and get them out. Don't worry about 
about their legal status in the United States. State Department officials said that. And that was corroborated on a recent trip that a couple of my colleagues who serve on the Judiciary Committee went over to Qatar and the commanding officer said, yeah, they were just telling us, get them to America, don't worry about the papers or whatever. And so we ended up um, being one of the bases where uh, thousands of people are still residing at this point from Afghanistan. Very few of them have a special immigrant visa, which is what the Biden administration told us back in August. People will have to go through this thorough vetting process, including most of them the SIV process. Hardly any of them went through SIV, which is oftentimes a one to two year process to really make sure that people are legitimate. And especially Afghanistan, the hotbed of terrorism in the world, Al-Qaeda, organizations, ISIS, organizations like that, and we're not thoroughly vetting people, that is a huge concern. And so what did I hear from the commanding officer in Fort McCoy? He says, IOM is one of the groups. And I'm like, is this the International Organization of Migration? Sure enough, it is. They are working there in Fort McCoy, Wisconsin, to facilitate this process. Heard it in Panama, the MMA. Heard it once again in Wisconsin with the Afghan situation um, at the end of August, and IOM was there every step of the way. A local pilot agreed to take us on a flyover of the U.S.-Mexico border. From there, we could see the porous border and the unfinished wall. Yet what use is a wall if the migrant crisis is being facilitated by the United Nations working with NGOs? and with even Border Patrol and law enforcement funneling migrants into the system. IOM, the International Organization for Migration. It's known as OIM in Latin America, and it's part of the United Nations. The question of where the money is coming from is answered on the IOM website. The most commonly named donor is the United States government, and it lists several sub-branches of the U.S. Agency for International Development, and the U.S. State Department. The U.N. organization appears to work directly with the State Department. It says that its refugee resettlement program, which runs on donations from the State Department's Bureau of Population, Refugees and Migration, provides extensive support to the U.S. government in carrying out its U.S. refugee admissions program. Among its listed services are medical, training, processing of cases, and transportation. It says the IOM branch in New York works as a liaison between the IOM and the U.S. State Department. And its website also solves some of the mystery where the migrants are getting their money. Under the Refugee Travel Loans tab of its website, it states, All refugees arriving in the United States are offered interest-free travel loans by IOM. And it says IOM arranges for refugee travel using funds furnished by the Department of State. It notes that refugees need to repay these debts within 46 months after arriving in the United States. And it passes this responsibility to NGOs, including the Church World Service, the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society, the International Rescue Committee, and others. American taxpayers are financing the mass migration into the United States including for operation costs and for direct payments to the migrants. The money is going through various NGOs, which are involved in resettling refugees. And the United Nations, meanwhile, 
is facilitating the migration into the U.S. under the guidance of the State Department. But are all of these asylum cases legitimate? And if our own immigration and asylum courts can't keep track of migrants once they enter the United States, how can the United Nations ensure that the migrants pay back their loans to the State Department? To get a better picture of the situation, we decided to head into Mexico and see for ourselves. We met with Aden Cabello, a videographer and correspondent for Real America's Voice on the U.S. side of the border. So I've been documenting this for about a year and a half. Um, and then here about two months ago when we had the, the Haitian migrants, um, I was able to document. Um, as I was going back from Del Rio to Acuna, I noticed a large crowd going back um, on the Weir Dam at the bridge. There's a large crowd going back to Acuna, and that caught my attention. I was like, where are they going back? So I, as soon as I crossed, I went and got my drone, and um, I went to the area. When I got there, there was hundreds of them on the Mexican side. And um, I flew the drone and to follow them, see where they were going. And that's when I get to the international bridge underneath, and I see about a thousand of them. You, you stumbled across that then, pretty much? Pretty much, I stumbled across it. Yes, that's correct. So I immediately went home, edited a quick video, uploaded it on social media, and that pretty much went viral and notified a lot of media and press. And that week, that's when they descended here to Del Rio. And at the same time, that's when more Haitian migrants started arriving. We're at about a thousand a day, then it went up to 2,000 a day. And that's how we ended up with the 15,000 that were under the bridge. And we had, I documented uh, the buses that were arriving. There's uh, over a hundred buses that, that arrived um, that week from Acuna. I also documented those buses um, as they were arriving. Um, so there's bus loads bringing other Haitians so, from So some were bringing them in through buses? Yes, at the time, yep, from uh, Chiapas. That's where they're at, Tapachula, Chiapas, down here to Acuña. Uh, Do we know who's running the buses? I try to um, look into it, but the drivers, um, they wouldn't tell, give any information. Um, really? I, I did come across um, one, and he seemed kind of frightened. So more than likely, they were being threatened to drive the Haitians threatened maybe by cartel members or somebody higher up that threatened them, you know, take this, drive this bus down to Acuña uh, because they were fearful. They didn't want to talk to press. So, so tell me about the situation in Mexico right now with these migrants. I mean, I understand there's two different types of migrants coming across right now, right? Yes. So we have the asylum seekers, those that do qualify for, for asylum and then those that don't qualify. And the ones that do qualify for asylum are mainly the Haitians, Cubans, Venezuelans. And those, they'll cross early in the morning um, and they turn themselves in right to Border Patrol. They're not trying to avoid being arrested. They want to get arrested so they can get processed. What are these documents you have? So, so these are documents. This is a Cuban nationality, Cuba. Mm -hmm. And this guy can, didn't can bother didn't bother to... Oh, this is his dog. His this whole is whole, whole, his whole folder. Yeah. He didn't even bother to... Most of them, they'll, they'll shred them, throw them away. This guy didn't bother doing... None of that. So these are all the documents. And this is one of the main documents that they seek. And this is from the um, Mexican immigration. That way they're able to travel freely through Mexico and not get deported. Well, why, why is it significant that they're able to travel freely in Mexico and they've been there long enough? Why is that significant with this? Because uh, Mexican immigration could arrest them and deport them to their country of origin or where they're coming from, where they used to live. This is from a few days ago. Uh, this is a whole family from um, Cuba. I see. So we have the father, mother, and child. And they're originally from 
Cuba, Cuba, but the child was born in Costa Rica. So and there were this is a family this in, is a, in Costa Rica, and so they probably left from Costa Rica. Not Cuba, from Cuba then. to Costa Rica, they were living in Costa Rica, and they, they had been in Mexico so long that they got their permanent residence in Mexico. Hmm. And what I've what I've gathered is that they get these so they can travel Mexico freely. I see. Until they get to the border. Once they get to the border, these are useless. So they just dump them there and, oh, so, and so cross. They, they throw them out. Then. They throw them out. Why, why would they want to throw them out and not keep them while they cross? So this is one of the main reasons, because this is telling you they were living in Costa Rica. I but see. when they cross, they told Border Patrol, I'm Cuban. I'm, I'm seeking asylum. I'm coming from Cuba. I'm, I'm so, being persecuted so, so over they, there. So they need to throw these out so they can lie to Border Patrol then? Exactly. I don't have it with me, but there are documents where there's, um, there's a whole brochure. It's like a playbook hmm. teaching them from start to finish how to get through Mexico. All these points that you're mentioning, um, stopping points, uh, bus stations, that there's going to be a, an NGO representative there to really? make sure they, they arrive at the right bus station and they, that they get on the right bus to the next um, stopping point. So, so, so they're being guided throughout the whole route so it's ngos running the buses telling them where to go giving them brochures teaching them how to do it do you know what these ngos are some of these are are catholic charities they're tied to the catholic church um the funding is coming from um united nations uh, united nations is feeding this yes i would say most of the money is coming from uh, united nations um ngos uh, catholic church catholic charities um, that, those, that's the main financial structure. When they get here to the border, uh, they made, there's several crossing points. In Del Rio here, uh, it was the, the Weir Dam, you know, which was just upriver of the port of entry that the Haitians were using. But there's another part that's uh, maybe about a mile upriver, which uh, I was just there today as several groups of people made their way across. And it's a part of the river where they just wade over. But, so they get turned over and DPS is the one that's receiving them. It's not Border Patrol, and the reason I say that is because Border Patrol is too busy processing in the office. They're, they're processing. They have very few agents that can actually go out and patrol, you know, in, in their assigned areas. So, like, for instance, at this place, it's called Borderlands, Bordelon, and, and it's, it's a crossing point. DPS receives them. Then they wait and turn them over to Border Patrol, all as the National Guard stands by and watches. The National Guard is not repelling. They're not intervening. They just stand by and watch. So then, of course, Border Patrol goes, processes them. In the past, what we would do is turn them over to ICE, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, for bed space, ERO, uh, Enforcement Removal Operations, and parts of the offices. But they're full. They're not, they're not prosecuting. Under Secretary of Homeland Security, Alejandro Mayorkas, ICE is not enforcing. They're not deporting. Uh, they're not housing them. And so that's when, like right behind this store here about half a mile maybe three quarters of a mile is the valverde border humanitarian coalition it's a non-governmental organization ngo that was stood up back under the soros caravans under trump and they were stood up at that point and now they're uh they're up again and there were busload after busload after busload of charter buses what i call the casino charter luxury liners that were driving up and the haitians were just getting bussed out so that's that's a, what I call a mom and pop NGO here, and for, and there they would receive them. Uh, they get they bathe, they get food, and uh, they get uh, either bus tickets 
or airline tickets. Uh, if they if they wanted to take a Greyhound, they'd get taken over the Greyhound station. If they were going to get, uh, you know, wanted to get a, a, a plane out of San Antonio or Houston, a charter bus would come and pick them up. And that was all uh, coordinated by the Valverde Border Humanitarian Coalition. Uh, that, that's one aspect of it. The mom and pops uh, down in uh, Eagle Pass is Mission Border Hope. And then uh, Catholic Charities is very active in the Rio Grande Valley. Catholic Charities is in El Paso. There's also Annunciation House in El Paso. We drove to one of the locations known to be a hot spot for legal crossings into the United States. As we went closer to the river, we started finding identifying documents covering the ground, including discarded ID cards, driver's licenses, passports, and others. What really stood out, though, were folders that could be found scattered amid the documents. So these are files that they're provided. This is the UN logo. It's a UN agency for refugees in Spanish. And so the United Nations gives them these pam these pamphlets, huh? Correct. United Nations and um, Mexican government as well. As we continued our search, we encountered a group of people as they prepared to illegally cross the border. They appeared nervous and refused to speak with us. We watched, however, as one of the men threw a hand of documents into a bush, which we retrieved and examined. Uh, they flew in from Cancun to Monterrey. We followed them down to the river and watched as they crossed and turned themselves over to the National Guard troops on the American side of the border. From the Mexican side, we can see military vehicles, we can see Humvees, we can see Texas National Guard. Uh, there's containers. There's a lot of um, law enforcement presence, but at the same time, that's not stopping or deterring illegal immigrants from crossing. They're still crossing. They'll come over from the Mexican side. They, they make their way diagonally this way. They land right over there where the cane is, where the fence is. And while they're there, they change their clothing. And they just leave the clothing just laying there on the ground. They change it to dry clothes, which they usually have in a plastic bag. And then they walk out and DPS here is waiting for them. It's not an apprehension, it's not an arrest, but they just hold them until Border Patrol comes and takes them off their hands. There's buses ready to get onto Laughlin Air Force Base. And when you see those big white buses on the side of the highway, it's usually two or three, you know that, a, that they're gonna take him on and, on the base and a 737 is gonna land at some point, they're gonna load up and they're gonna fly out. So what's really happening at the U.S.-Mexico border? Definitely not what most of us have been told. There are various gangs profiting from the mass migration along the way, but the cartels that we've been told are the main players seem to play only a minor role in the overall picture. In Del Rio, for example, they have little presence. The border wall is incomplete, and it's also been made irrelevant by government policy. What good is a wall when people cross in mass numbers, then turn themselves in and apply for asylum to get transported into the American heartland. Border Patrol and law enforcement have become the funnels for the NGOs running this operation. And even more so, the people crossing are getting paid money to do this. And that money is coming out of the pockets of American taxpayers. Many of the migrants, as we saw, intentionally hide their country of origin and discard their identities to defraud the amnesty system. Our investigation uncovered that the border crisis, in reality, is a United Nations operation being financed by the U.S. government, 
with the goal of moving and resettling migrants throughout the United States. And the open policy, along with the financial incentives, it is drawing people in by the hundreds of thousands.